0: Welcome to Locked On NFL, your daily podcast on the National Football League on the number one daily sports podcast network. Brian Peacock along with Matt Williamson and a guest today covering the Seattle Seahawks right here on the network, Corbin Smith. His inside information on how the deal went down with the Jets for Jamal Adams, what it means for Seattle and uh, how it changes the landscape of the NFC and specifically the NFC West. But first, Matt, there is some ominous things happening in the sports world now once again. And this, I mean, it's a yo-yo here with with COVID-19. And now that sports are happening, last week, it's like, awesome, sports are back. And now we've hit the first big hurdle in this. Major League Baseball going through a problem now, having to cancel games. Multiple players um, in the teens now. I think 17 was the last count I saw. An outbreak on one team with the Marlins. So Marlins games shut down the team. They're playing against the Phillies. Those games canceled because they're on a flight to another city. Um, that's bad news for the league. And now we're starting to see some players opt out in the NFL.
1: Yeah, uh, to me, it's scary. You know, I mean, we're, we're recording this uh, middle of the day on Tuesday, and you guys will be getting it in your inboxes here any minute, I'm sure. But it just seems like this could be a flood in terms of NFL. You know, like we're seeing the Patriots. Cannon, Hightower, Chung. You know, these guys are getting or opting out. And I don't think anybody blames any of these at least players for opting out. But I just feel like that might just be the beginning of the list. And that every team might have three or four names we know, let alone you know, bottom of the roster guys, who frankly are probably a little less likely to do it just for financial reasons, as opposed to the guys that have millions in the bank. But I'm officially concerned that. Maybe we'll have fifty, hundred, you know, guys that opt out, and that's going to impact the league dramatically.
0: Yeah, six of them already yeah. with the New England Patriots. Patrick Chung and Dante Hightower are the, are the big ones there. Cannon as well, Marcus yeah. Cannon. Um, so th- they're the team that's really had the most of those. Most other teams have maybe one guy here and there. Star Tulele, Eddie Goldman, Andre Smith, uh, Eddie Vanderdoes.
1: There is. I mean, Eddie Wells Goldman's and, a good player. Yeah. I mean, that's right. that's yeah. a, a big piece of that run defense that I always feel for the GMs. I mean, that's the way I think is, you know, front office logic is if I only knew I could at least draft it a nose tackle in the fifth round or at least prepared for it. But this is almost like, you know, when somebody goes down in minicamp and is out for the year and you're like, well, I'm out of resources I know that there are some people on the street that you could call up, and I'm sure those guys will benefit. But, man, some of these teams are going to be playing with replacement-level guys a lot of snaps.
0: This was hilarious. I don't know if you saw this tweet from Adam Schefter earlier Tuesday, but he said, An actual text exchange with an NFL executive today after a sixth Patriot opted out. The exec said, "Quote, You know Bill is masterminding all of this somehow. Adam Schefter said, for what reason? That exec says, quote, I don't know. That's why he is who he is. I mean, how much is Bill Belichick? <laughs> work out. How much is Bill Belichick in everyone's head, first of all? And do you think there's anything to this? I mean, uh, is this the tank for Trevor situation in New England?
1: I don't think so. I don't think that's in his genetics or he could ever take that approach. I mean, I'm just gonna lower my winning percentage for Trevor Lawrence and wouldn't assign Cam Newton to do that. And that's what's awesome about Belichick to me is is he's earned that massive benefit of the doubt that no matter what goes wrong, it's all like, well, Bill saw this eight moves ahead of time, like a master <laughs> chess player, and everyone's playing right into his hands like the emperor, you know?
0: It's amazing. How do you feel about this? Because it's obviously very different. The NBA bubble is going pretty well. Uh, the, the hockey bubble Hockey's is, doing well, yeah. is happening. Major League Baseball had this first big problem, and part of it was... Really bad by the team deciding over group text. Look, we've got this mini breakout. At least three people that you know of have it. Should we play or should we not? Like, it was just a shoddy thing from the start. Like, they handled it poorly. So I think the NFL can learn from that. NFL rosters are bigger, though. The bigger the roster, the more difficult it's going to be to handle something like this if there is a breakout within one team but at the same time you're not jumping from city to city airplane rides you know and playing back-to-back games on back-to-back days it's an entire week between games so in some ways bigger rosters that makes it more difficult for the nfl but one game per week you're not bouncing around cities with teams infecting other teams in such a, a short time frame so you should be able to isolate it better so i'm i'm having trouble thinking is it going to be worse for the nfl or is it going to be easier because of less frequent games
1: <coughs> well real quick the way it was reported that the Marlins handled it, you know, like, hey, we have cases, should we play or not? To me, seems like a finable offense. You know, like, to me, that's worse than, that's like Spygate, like, it should cost you a first-round pick. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) uh, that seems like that's, you know, unethical very much to me. Um, But, uh, of course, NFL is not a bubble situation, but I've been a part of this. I mean, even in a normal year, NFL teams, when they travel, can go from their building with a police escort through every red light to a to the tarmac, walk right on the plane after they go through a security check, be the only people on that plane. Maybe they'll bring some media, but probably not this year. Land, walk off the plane onto a bus, a police escort through every red light takes them to the hotel. They won't have anybody in the lobby waiting for them this year. Go right up to your room and then rinse, repeat to get to the stadium. So they don't travel like us is all I'm saying.
0: Yeah, they don't travel like us. They travel less often. And, oh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, It is an ominous situation. I think it was handled poorly by Major League Baseball. I think they could have done a better job and isolated it. And if the NFL learns from that and if their protocols are maybe better, Who knows? Maybe it negates it all. And maybe this is a big learning experience, but you don't like to see any league have that sort of a, and and in the NFL, I feel like with major league baseball, they're just trying to figure this shortened season out for the NFL. They want to play 16 games and you have the opportunity. Like I just worry about the, the scenario where you shut a team down. If a team shuts down, like, does it shut down the whole season? Basically
1: or that whole week, week, week 14. And we're going right. to take off, you know, I mean, or the whole season, like you said, uh, again, I mean, I'm worried about the tight, ty- the quality of player people are going to have the depth and I, I, it's great that you've expanded practice squads. I've been on that soapbox for a long time. That's great. But that doesn't mean they're ready to play on Sunday for us to watch at the same level. And I'm also worried now, not that we'll have a season, but will we end the season?
0: Multiple teams will have players that opt out. You're going to have players who um, are not really ready to go. Reps, young players, it's going to be difficult. No preseason practice games, so some sloppy football to start. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a really odd year at best, and then there's that other thing looming where there could be an outbreak that really screws the whole thing up. And so, yeah, when when you when you go through a week like this and you see something like that happen, like what's going on with Major League Baseball, you get a little bit worried. But we yeah. still have some time and hopefully you can learn from this and they can get this thing figured out because, you know, health and safety should be the the number one factor in all
1: this. Yes. My last little nugget on it, though, is. Remember when we were kids, the strike-shortened year, early 80s. It was 82 or something right in that neighborhood. The Redskins won. You know, Scabs played a lot of games. Mark Mosley won the NFL MVP that year, a kicker. So it was a big asterisk year. Sorry, Washington fans. But, you know, that was not a normal year. I worry that this year might be very similar. And, frankly... If we get something along those lines, it's still better than nothing. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> you <laughs> you, know? you,
0: yeah, as you were laying that out, I was like, I'll take it, man. I'm sorry. I'll take it. If point, you could yeah. guarantee me that, I'm okay. Yeah. Let's get to our guest today, Corbin Smith. He's the host of Locked On Seahawks. Break down this Jamal Adams blockbuster trade. Our guest today is Corbin Smith. You can find him on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. SeahawksMaven.com writing about the Seahawks every day videos as well every day for Sports Illustrated covering the Seattle Seahawks and also the host of Locked on Seahawks Corbin how are you on this fine Tuesday
2: well training camp is starting at least that's what we're being told so I'm looking at it from an optimistic lens we've got football returning and hopefully it stays that way
0: massive shakeup in the NFC West this week. And that's why we wanted to have you on uh, talk Seattle, talk NFC West and talk about Jamal Adams. And you were, we've talked about this a little bit on the lockdown 49 ers show. We did a crossover a couple of weeks ago and uh, you had some inside information on this. And you said it was the 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks that were the two most interested teams that had made contact with the New York Jets about Jamal Adams. And lo and behold, It turns out the Seattle Seahawks definitely were one of those teams and pulled off a blockbuster trade. John Lynch, 49ers GM, saying, no, we didn't call about him. It didn't make sense for us. So I don't know whether to believe that or not. A lot of uh, coaches (laughs) and front office, people uh, like to fib about that type of stuff. John Lynch has been pretty darn honest since he uh, joined the 49ers as a GM. But let's focus on those Seattle Seahawks. Uh, How did this work from you and your sources? How did this all go behind the scenes before we all heard about it?
2: So I actually heard at the combine that there were some rumors out there about Seattle maybe having some interest in pursuing Adams in a trade but it, to me it seemed like combine fodder is speculation and so at that point I wasn't going to report anything I thought it was just people kicking the can here at the combine but then a few weeks ago there had already been some stories out there but I hadn't heard anything from a source that I trusted and then I reached out to two league officials and Basically, I was told this is this is not John Schneider just sniffing around. Like this is genuine interest. They want Jamal Adams. They think that this is a missing player on their defense. It's a defense that struggled most of last year. They were in the 20s in run defense, pass defense, 22nd in scoring defense. When they got Quandre Diggs, that helped, but they still were not the typical defense you normally see under Pete Carroll, and so they're looking at Jamal Adams as that missing piece that can play a number of different roles for them. He can help their pass rush as a blitzer. He can play the deep third if need be. He can just play all over the field, and so they were willing to deal away two first-rounders, and what I was told is that here in the last couple weeks that they sweetened the pot with that second the second first rounder to make this happen and ultimately John Schneider felt like it was well worth it and I do think the fact that the draft is going to be compromised this next year had a lot to do with this decision as well I think they're looking at like Mm. there might not be a college football season so you know what we're expecting we're going to have a late first round pick there's nothing wrong with us dealing it for a player that we're probably not going to be able to get at the end of the first round anyway
1: you obviously implied you know that the Niners were in this too Huge rivalry going back years. I don't need to tell you two about that, obviously. Um, but do you? Th- this was a steep price tag when I, I when I, the, the the Seahawks made sense to me for the player, but boy, I thought it was a lot to give up. Do you really think it was? We're doing battle here with the Niners and just had to up the ante. I don't know how much that
2: went into this because, again, what I was told a few weeks ago is it sounded like this was not a case where the Seahawks were trying to push the price up for San Francisco or vice versa. This is a player that John Schneider and Pete Carroll coveted on their defense. And so, again, I think the whole draft situation, what we might not have with college football this year, and if it plays in the spring, a lot of your really good players aren't going to play anyway they're just going to prepare for the draft it it throws everything in limbo so I do think that that played a role in this but at the end of the day we're talking about a guy that isn't even 25 years old yet that was a first team all pro and he's got two years left under his contract he told the Seahawks he would play this year without an extension too which I'm sure that was a big deal to John Schneider when he was sure. determining how much he was going to give up to get this player and so I think everything just came together here in the last few weeks and these discussions according to Pete Carroll have been going on for months. So maybe what I was hearing at the combine was not just speculation, but it really heated up the last couple of weeks and they were able to strike a deal and Joe Douglas just wasn't going to turn that package
0: down. Right, that's when I saw the deal, and I saw it for Joe Douglas, and I was thinking, man, if I'm Joe Douglas, I probably take that even if Jamal Adams had never caused any drama and never even asked for a trade, because that was a heck of a haul, two first-rounders, and we're talking about a safety. We're not talking about a marquee position in the NFL, a corner or a left tackle or a defensive end, like we've seen some major two first-round trades in the past. You know, teams giving up two first-round picks, and so this is a safety, as good of a safety as he is. uh, How would you grade this for the Seahawks as far as the package that – they gave up. Is this a lot more, a little bit more right about what you would have expected for the Seahawks to give up for Jamal Adams when you were sort of thinking about how this trade might work before it actually happened?
2: So I actually posted this article about a month and a half ago. I was just looking at three realistic trade scenarios for Seattle. And one of them that I had, one of the three options was sending a first round pick the 2022 second rounder and a third round pick plus Marquise Blair potentially being in the mix and then if that happened you would give up a fifth instead of a third but since they traded McDougal I was told McDougal in the fourth were the last two additions made on this trade but uh, that trade was fairly close that's about what I expected and I thought there was a really good chance that the Jets were going to push for two first round picks and based on what I've been told what Seattle wanted in the secondary there was a chance that maybe John Schneider might be willing to do that. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So that was probably the closest alternative they had in those three options. I really thought the Jets were going to try to get Marquise Blair, but I think, that Pete Carroll and John Schneider are looking at this as we can play Marquise Blair with Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams and use some three safety sets. They don't want to give up on a player that has a lot of upside. And so I think they were they were more inclined to give up more draft capital than send away a player that they're very fired up about.
1: It makes sense. I mean, Corbin, you know this team extremely well, obviously. And when we reacted to it you know, from yesterday, uh, a big thing I stressed was Seattle views first round pick capital different than every other team in the league. I mean, they often trade it for Percy Harvin or another veteran, or they take Collier or Penny or a Fetty that the quote draft Knicks never would have taken at that spot. Like they, they really use first round picks to their own drummer. They really do, and I think – I don't want to say that they're
2: just going to throw first-round picks away, but let's be honest, the likelihood of them picking wherever they were going to start at anyway, I was stunned that they didn't trade down this year because that's basically what John Schneider does every single season. They had a deal with the Packers in place, and then Green Bay jumped one spot in front of them to get Jordan Love. And so that's another reason I think that this trade makes a lot of sense for Seattle when you consider, again – the draft situation going into next year it's going to be a draft like we anything we've ever seen especially if there's no college football season so I think from the Seahawks' perspective, if they were trading for a guy that was three or four years older, then I think maybe you would pause a bit. But this guy is just coming into his prime, and he was a first-team All-Pro selection. And and we know Pete Carroll has to be fired up about having a player that he can interchange at both safety spots. You play him like a linebacker occasionally. Just the fact that he's going to give them so much more flexibility. And I do like the idea, as I just mentioned, Quandre Diggs has played some slot corner. They could play some three safety sets that would be dynamic with Adams. Marquise Blair can play the free safety spot. In fact, that's where Pete Carroll sounds like he would like to get him some action at. And then you could have Quandre Diggs play in the slot position. You've got three playmakers that will come up and smack you on that defense. And that's something that just lacked a bit last year. Most of the season is they just didn't have that physical element you normally see
1: from a Seahawks defense. Along those lines with the usage, I just want to go down one path that we talked about too, because... I am intrigued by Diggs going to slot. It's a big slot. Maybe he lines up on George Kittle or Everett or Higby or, you know, whoever. And, you know, using big nickel is is very fashionable now. And Adams brings that dynamic without question. But what's sticking in my mind is this team ran what people would call base, three linebackers, 69% of the time, which not only is first in the league, But second in the league is Arizona at 34%. Like they're almost double everybody else. PKL
2: just doesn't care.
1: (laughs) That's what I'm getting at. I mean, because in a nutshell, I'd be like, well, maybe they're trying to get out of that. They're going to play more big nickel, but they use the first round pick on a linebacker. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You
2: make a good point there, and I, <laughs> I get it. I've, ri- I've written a couple articles about this, and my take is that they're they're not going to play as much bass as they did, but you do still have K.J. Wright and Bobby Wagner, and then you added Jordan Brooks, a pick that at first I was kind of like, well, this seems like maybe a little bit of a reach, but when you go back and watch his film, you can see what John Schneider and Pete Carroll were so excited about teaming him up with Bobby Wagner and I think eventually he's going to replace Wagner a couple years Mm -hmm. down the road in the middle linebacker spot but he can play anywhere the three linebacker positions for Seattle and so I think that this ultimately getting Adams just gives them so much more flexibility my biggest argument against the Seahawks defense last year and I don't even know that this was Ken Norton Jr. the defensive coordinator's fault it just felt like the defense was very vanilla, even by Seahawks standards, especially in terms of mixing up their personnel. And I think a lot of it was they just didn't have the bodies to be able to rotate into nickel and dime sets and be comfortable with it. They were trying to throw an undrafted – not an undrafted, a fourth-round pick in Ugo Amati in at the slot corner position. Jamar Taylor really struggled. I think Pete Carroll just looked at his personnel and said, look – We're going to play this base defense because this is our best 11 players, and I think they have set themselves up now where they have a lot more flexibility to play a lot of different stuff, and you don't necessarily have to sub out guys to change up formations either, which is big when you have a team like the Cardinals in your division that you know is going to be running an up-tempo attack.
0: So it looks like the back seven is is pretty well set now in Seattle with one question. And I don't know, maybe you can clear some of this up with what's going on with Quentin Dunbar and that other cornerback spot opposite of Shaquille Griffin.
2: So right now, everything that I've been told on the Dunbar front, the Seahawks are not going to be releasing him. They're going to be hanging on to him. He is appealing the commissioner's exempt. Designation as is DeAndre Baker. Both those guys are trying to get it set up so that they can participate in training camp practices. But as it stands right now, he will be allowed if the Seahawks let him to fly out to Seattle, but he will only be able to do non-football related activities. He's not going to be allowed onto the field or doing strength and conditioning stuff. So um, right now, that it looks pretty unclear, especially when you look at what's going on in Florida with COVID. They are way behind on their court cases. And honestly, trying to get a verdict on what these guys allegedly did is not going to be a top priority. There are some murder cases that have not been solved yet that they're going to be trying to fill in and so this could be something that lasts for months or even years before we have a verdict on it and so that made me think of the Michael Kendrick situation a few years ago with Seattle where he was able to play in a few games and then he was suspended they finally set up a finite suspension for him and then he came back and the Seahawks brought him back and he played in 14 games last year are we going to see something similar to that with Dunbar, who knows, but certainly COVID is throwing a wrench into that entire process along with the NFL season.
0: More with Corbin Smith of Locked On Seahawks. What about the pass rush in Seattle? And of course, Russell Wilson and the offensive side of the ball, how they stack up now in the NFC
1: West. Corbin, Brian made a startling statement yesterday saying, (laughs) Jamal Adams might be the best pass rusher on this entire team. And I kind of chuckled and i thought about it since. And I'm like, well, he's a pretty good pass rusher. And I don't see a lot else. Well, here's a couple names
2: I'm going to throw out there. This is my viewpoint. I think Seattle, when you're looking at the entire group of pass rushers, is going to be better off than they were last year, even without Clowney. Because Bruce Irvin, if they use him correctly, they're talking about playing him at Sam Linebacker. I know they did that the first four years he was in the league, but he is at his best rushing off the edge. Let him go do that, and that's what they need right now. You watch his film last year. He was fantastic for the Panthers, so let him rush off the edge of the Leo position. Benson Bioa is the wild card here. I think this is a kid. You look at his film the last two years. The Arizona Cardinals started him four games at the beginning of the 2018 season. And I thought he played fantastic football. He was good against the run. He had several quarterback hits and sacks. And then the Cardinals coaching staff benched him, and he didn't play much the last 10, 12 games. There's a reason that that staff was replaced after one year. And then you look in Oakland last year, Mayoa was just a situational guy and he had seven sacks playing less than 30% of Oakland's defensive snaps. I just think at 28 years old, this is a late bloomer that has a chance to really break out if he gets more snaps. I think he's an underrated run defender. In fact, I would say right now he's probably the starter at the Leo spot. And so when you add those two to the fold, if Daryl Taylor or Alton Robinson can contribute at all as rookies And Jaron Reed's just got to be better than last year. And you would expect he's going to get more sacks. You add those together, this is instantly going to be a better pass-rushing team than it
1: was a year ago just by default. Is Clowney out of the mix now? You mentioned his name. And and what about A.B.? Any chance they go all in on any of these guys? I think at this point,
2: if they're going to add any other players, the two names I would throw out there, Josh Gordon getting reinstated. I think they really want to bring him back. They were impressed with him in the five weeks he was with the team last year. Really good locker room presence. The coaching staff loved him. I think he can come back. And then the other name I'm going to throw out there, there's reports circulating. This is what I heard. He's still trying to decide if he wants to play because of COVID. But Damon Harrison, they hmm. need to add another big-body defensive lineman up front. They've They've got he would qualify. They've got Puna Ford, they've got Jaron Reed, but then you look behind those two, they have four games of NFL experience at the defensive tackle position, and all four of them, were Brian Monet, who was an undrafted rookie last year. They've got two other undrafted rookies and Demarcus Christmas, who missed all of his rookie season with a back injury. Christmas could be an intriguing guy if he's healthy, but they need to add somebody to replace Al Woods, who was one of their underrated defenders last year. Damon Harrison would fit that bill. They need a big-bodied nose. So I've heard for weeks they've been looking into him. Timmy Jernigan is the other name that I've heard. If he's healthy, he failed a physical with the Texans that ended up negating a contract that he signed so those are some names to throw out there I think Clowney is still a very slim odds but um, as I said a few days ago on Twitter maybe with Jamal Adams coming to town maybe that'll persuade him to take a little less and come back to Seattle for a chance at the championship
0: let's talk offense in Seattle Corbin I was a little bit surprised to see how high DK Metcalf ranked on the NFL 100 that's being released right now. I think he was like number 80 or something like that, which was quite surprising. So, um, you know, some some projection there for the young man, and, and I love DK Metcalf. I thought he was a first-round pick all day. I don't know how he fell to the last pick of round two. It was a genius move by Seattle to move up and snack him uh, before anybody else did, and a perfect X receiver opposite Tyler Lockett, but really it all boils down to the man who's taking snaps under center, For Seattle, Russell Wilson, is this the year that we finally see hashtag free Russ in that offense?
2: I think that they're going to open things up a little bit. As long as Pete Carroll is the coach, they are going to run the football a lot, whether fans want to hear that or not. He's had a lot of success doing that, but I do think you look at some of the moves that they have made. They brought in BJ Finney, who is now going to be their starting center. They just released Joey Hunt, who was the other player that might've been in contention for that spot. BJ Finney gave up just two sacks and over a thousand offensive snaps the last four years when he had opportunities with the Steelers. I think he's a very good pass protecting center. He's not going to maul people in the run game. So it's a little different. He's a little different player than Justin Britt was, but He's going to be an upgrade in that regard. I think Damian Lewis is a better pass protector than people realize. His strength is in the run game, but I think he's going to have the goods to be able to play right away. And then on the left side at left guard, I really like Phil Haynes and he had, He had not played a regular season game last year. He was on the pup list for a good portion of the season. He gets thrown into a playoff game against the Packers, and he played admirably in the second half when they almost came back from a 21-3 deficit to win that game. And so I just look at the personnel changes on the front line. And I think you can see some signs, especially with adding Philip Dorsett and Greg Olson on the outside. Uh, They've got a couple other draft picks they brought in that they think might be able to contribute immediately. I definitely think they are going to let Russ cook a little bit more. He's not going to become Emerald Degassi, but he's going to get his opportunities to throw the football a little bit more than he has in years past.
1: I'm glad you mentioned Finney. He's a personal favorite of mine. I watched a ton of him and talked to him many times with the Steelers. You're right. He's going to be a quality player for them. I still keep harping though. I mean, it's pulled up every team's run pass percentage and Seattle's at 27th. I mean, there's only five teams that ran the ball a higher percentage of the time. The Colts, Fikes, Titans, Niners, Baltimore, all the culprits you'd think. And it, 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 makes me a little crazy and goes back to my same question about three linebackers on the field. A lot like, is this the least analytic driven team in the league? <laughs> uh,
2: I, you know, if you hear Pete Carroll work. press conferences, yeah. and he'll say, "Well, we we uh, embrace analytics," and I don't know, I don't necessarily know that the uh, actual stats point to that. I mean, I, I will admit I, I'm I'm a big run game supporter myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little biased because I used to be a running back myself, but um, and I played defensive line, so I've always understood the value wow. of the running game and how. That impacts play action. I know the analytics say it doesn't, but you watch film, you can still see the impact a good running game has on that. So I understand where Pete Carroll's coming from, from that perspective. But what really eats at me is the lack of versatility on first down there's just still way too many times that it's obvious we're just going to turn and hand it to Chris Carson. And it'd be nice to see them mix in more play action on first down. I think just doing that
1: would make this offense much tougher to stop. Or even just throw into the backs on first down. I mean, easy throws, pick up six yards. You know, we, mean? they Let's did seem to
2: do more ball. of that last year. Chris yeah. Carson and Rashad Penny were much more involved in the passing game, and that was something, Brian. I'm going to say this. I've said it. I said it on our NFC West crossovers. I think Brian Schottenheimer has done a fantastic job in his two years as offensive coordinator. I don't think that he is the one that is on his own calling all the run plays. I mean, Pete Carroll hired him because both of them do embrace that run game, but I think he's done a fantastic job of developing concepts for his receivers, and he's really helped Russell Wilson get to that next level in his game.
0: Corbin, most people have picked the 49ers to again win the West. The Seahawks were inches away from being in first place in the West last season, Does the big trade for Jamal Adams and everything that has gone on this offseason, do you think it's been enough for the Seahawks to overtake the 49ers in the West? I think as long
2: as you've got Russell Wilson under center, you are going to be in the mix for a division championship. And I do think Jamal Adams is going to help that defense significantly. That being said, I still think the 49ers top to bottom have a slightly better roster. The quarterback situation could be the ultimate equalizer here so to speak though. Russell Wilson can put this team on his back and he can win a lot of games that the Seahawks have no business winning. We saw that last year. They are going to have to be a much more complete team to have another 10-11 win season, though. All those games they won by one score, you can't do that year in, year out. So they're going to have to be much more dominant, particularly on defense where they had a lot of games, where they gave up a lot of points. I think the talent is there for them to make a run. Right now, I'd still say the 49ers, though, at least on paper, are a slightly better team, and I would put them as the favorite.
1: Corbin, you agree, though, and you've kind of implied it through this conversation that – the state of the NFC West has a lot to do with this trade. I mean, someone's got to guard Kittle. check is a problem in that the Niners have five guys that can catch the ball at all times. Higby in in L.A. Yeah, I mean, putting you in conflict, just the way the Niners play. And then even the other aspect is we're going to have to play against Kyler Murray twice a year for the next 10 years.
2: Yeah, this whole division is just, and the thing is, I think the NFC West top to bottom was probably the best division of football last year. And then look what every team has done. Really, the Rams have been the only ones that haven't added any marquee names, but I like the draft that the Rams had. I think they added some really good players in their first couple of draft picks that could make an immediate impact. And some of the players they let go of, it might be in a case of addition by subtraction because of diminishing returns, particularly Todd Gurley. The 49ers go out and get Trent Williams, and they've added a bunch of really solid players. Brandon Ayuk was one of my favorite receivers in this draft class, and so kind of uh, not fun seeing him go to San Francisco, but... Um, And then of course the Cardinals get DeAndre Hopkins and they're going to have a couple other players coming back from injury. I mean, their receiving core is going to be loaded, especially if they're able to get Hakeem Butler back who missed all of last season. And uh, you've got Larry Fitzgerald who's still a fantastic player and Christian Kirk. I mean, they are loaded with weapons and Kyler Murray is going to have a chance to really take off in year two. So there is not an easy game on this schedule. I can see any of the four teams winning this division if things play out right just because they're going to these teams are just going to be beating up on each other
0: that is corbin smith you can find him on twitter at corbin smith nfl read all of his stuff sports illustrated covering the seahawks of course daily at locked on seahawks as well corbin appreciate the time man thank you so much thanks for having me thanks everybody for listening be back tomorrow breaking down the latest around the league right here locked on nfl